It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, the tall challenge of getting earthquake aid to people deep inside a pariah nation. The international effort to aid millions of earthquake victims in Turkey and Syria has now transitioned from a rescue mission to find trapped survivors to a relief and rebuilding campaign that's expected to take years. Delivering aid of any kind is especially difficult in Syria. The country and its leader, Bashar al-Assad, are cut off from most other nations by U.S. and European economic sanctions that are aimed at pressuring Assad's regime. For more than a decade, he has violently tried to crush opposition. Governments and relief organizations that want to help are often obstructed by the demands of the government, which tries to control the flow of money and supplies. And they're sometimes wary of running afoul of the sanctions, which can come with heavy penalties. What we hope to see is that all viable routes into northwest Syria are opened to ensure that aid agencies can really get into the country at scale and speed necessary to deal with this really devastating crisis. That's Jennifer Higgins with the International Rescue Committee. It's a group that's trying to get past all these hurdles and help earthquake victims in Syria. And we'll hear more from her in just a bit. First, my colleague Sylvia Westall in Dubai and Nick Wadhams in Washington are here to untangle the complexities of trying to do the right thing in a volatile part of the world. Sylvia, can you describe what's happening right now, both in Syria and in Turkey? What we're seeing is a very different picture on the Turkish and Syrian side. Um, although, you know, they're obviously affected by the same earthquake and their populations that live very closely together along the border. A lot of the focus has been on Turkey and the earthquakes because the actual epicenter of the earthquake was in Turkey and Gaziantep. And there's just been sort of much more coverage about what's been happening there. Um, it's easy to report there. It's easy to get information and to understand what's happening. These are also areas that are important to the Turkish government. They're strongholds of support for um, President Erdogan and his party. We've had kind of an updated death and you know injuries toll of people from Turkey, but Syria, the information's been quite spotty um, and the numbers don't really make sense that have been reported on the official news agency. Nick, as Sylvia points out, earthquakes don't care about borders, but governments do. And that difference between the response in Syria and the response in Turkey, especially from the world community, has been very different in part because of the heavy sanctions against Syria. Can you explain just exactly why Syria has become essentially a pariah nation? The Syrian civil war began in about 2011. And since then, 
Bashar al-Assad, the president, has committed a series of abuses against his own people, including chlorine gas attacks, um, and the country has essentially been riven by uh, a civil war and, and is now divided into a, a series of territories where uh, various groups have control. And I mean, my, my impression from the U.S. side is that there's basically Assad and then this whole array of other groups, including, you know, the remnants of the Islamic State. Uh, and then you have the involvement of all sorts of other countries from the outside, obviously Turkey, Israel, um, Iran. It's just sort of become this welter of groups where the battle lines are not clear and are constantly changing. You know, Sylvia, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, actually. Like, uh, half the time, I'm not even really sure what anybody is fighting for anymore. I mean, it's been 11 years since the start of the Civil War, and it can sometimes feel very hard as an outsider to really understand. I mean, you know what Assad's motivations are. He wants to stay in power and, and have as much control as possible. But all the other groups, it's like, what do they want? I would just question whether we can call it a civil war at all, because I guess a civil war is a war between its own peoples. And what we really have here is a, is a conflict in a country that's drawn in lots of international powers and groups and aims and demands and so on. So I, I, I kind of try to avoid calling it a civil war in our copy because it's, it's kind of morphed completely beyond that. So, you know, it started off as a, a mainly peaceful uprising against the government. So you had this uprising, you had a very violent crackdown against it. So I think, you know, we're really seeing a war that's brought in global powers. If the Syrian government, the main aim is to reclaim all Syrian territory and say, this is Syria, it's Syria as a whole. And then uh, these groups on the ground, yeah, they all have different motivations. They want to hold on to the territories that they have. The areas that were affected by the earthquake, it's a mix of groups that control the territory. It's mainly out of government control. In those areas are groups um, like the kind of the remnants of the main Syrian rebel force. Also got the US-backed forces, uh, which involve uh, mainly Kurdish fighters, but also other fighters from other groups. That's one other force. Um, you've got the remnants of... Uh, Al-Nusra Front, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, but that's kind of quite a minimal presence. And I think perhaps in the US discourse, that's kind of often highlighted as a, as a main concern in Syria. And I'd say, you know, all of this airspace as well, you know, Russia basically controls the airspace. So that's another element in there. You've got Iranian-backed elements. You've got pockets of government-held support. So it's this real mix of different groups uh, in these areas. But the main kind of problem is within that area, you've got a lack of infrastructure for transporting large amounts of aid. In an effort to either boot Assad from power or sway the course of the civil war, the U.S. and its allies have imposed some of the most crippling sanctions anywhere in the world. I mean, up there with North Korea and Myanmar, and it's really made Syria essentially one of the most isolated countries economically in the world. The middle class has scattered, international companies have completely scattered. Uh, there is no resource, there's no infrastructure now uh, on the ground for a lot of aid groups. Some aid groups do do work there, but th there's really no financial infrastructure on the ground now for groups to go in quickly and to be able to provide the support, the humanitarian assistance that Syria would need. Yeah, so you've got, you know, people that have been internally displaced in the millions uh, within Syria itself. And many of those people are in some of those zones. And then you've got also people that have crossed over the border into Turkey. So you've got the largest refugee population in the world is in Turkey. 
and in the very zone that was affected. So you've got, you know, internal refugees in Syria, you've got refugees within Turkey. So you've got some of these most vulnerable populations in both countries that have been affected. Um, and, and Nick is right, you know, if you look at sort of the aid response, um, it's very complicated in Syria. Uh, and, you know, we've seen sort of on the surface kind of what the Syrian government has been saying. Uh, we had uh, Assad's um, advisor, Buthena Shaban, uh, saying that sanctions are to blame. And if we just lift the sanctions or if, or if Europe and the US now lift the sanctions, then this will help aid get through. But the actual picture is a lot more complicated, as Nick alluded to. It's a very difficult for aid groups to operate in Syria. And most of the international aid groups have to go via Damascus uh, with agreements with the government uh, and then need to um, negotiate on aid transferring into um, non-government held areas, so rebel held areas. And that's the second step. So the first step is getting into Syria itself, um, into the government held areas or talking with the government and then crossing over the lines of the Syrian conflict into the areas that need it most. And that's where the real problem lies and real the real problem begins. And that's what Perhaps the focus has been off Syria for a while. I covered the, you know, the outbreak of war back in 2011, and it's strange. It's the same entrenched positions, the same problems as beginning, and that's kind of what the situation is now. And that aid cannot get to the populations that really need it, and aid is being used as a tool in the wider conflict. These people are being used as political pawns in a way in this in this war that's gone on since 2011. The one thing, though, that's so interesting to me and, and frankly depressing is how much Syria has slid off of the agenda in the U.S. It just does not feel like a priority for the Biden administration. You know, when I started covering the State Department in 2016, John Kerry was meeting Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister. The topic was Syria, humanitarian corridors trying to figure this out together. Under Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, there was a lot of pressure over the, the chlorine gas attacks. Uh, it just felt like we were talking about Syria so much more in the West. And now uh, you, you hear conversations about U.S. troop presence, and it's sort of held up as this place, a, a prime example of where the U.S. is doing things, uh, has troops on the ground that it's not really telling its own people about. But otherwise... It just feels like it's been relegated to another one of these completely intractable problems that no one wants to deal with. Sylvie and Nick, please stay with me. Our conversation continues after the break. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Nick and Sylvia, and you describe all of this is why it has been so difficult to help people in Syria, certainly much harder than it has been in Turkey. And Syria, of course, has very little resources to come to the aid of its own people and therefore is reliant on international aid. Can you describe how sanctions are affecting the ability to deliver aid where it's needed? So... The way that the entirety of U.S. sanctions policy is structured is on self-compliance, on forcing banks uh, and companies out there to 
police themselves on whether they are keeping up with sanctions. And even if they have made a mistake and done an inadvertent sanctions violation, they can be punished very, very severely. And what would a sanctions violation be? Can you describe what a sanction is in this case? Well, say you facilitate a transaction between an international aid group and an organization in Syria. If that organization in Syria is determined to have links to Assad or the Islamic State or whatever else, they are a sanctioned entity. So whoever it is, a bank, could be punished, you know, millions and millions of dollars uh, for facilitating that transaction, even if it's nominally doing so under the guise of humanitarian aid. And the whole idea there is to make it so that financial institutions don't even want to do it. That's right. So in some cases, the Treasury Department leaves some of these rules intentionally vague as a, as a way of scattering players from the market. They want to keep people out of Syria. So what they do is they just say, you can't do business with these types of groups. We're not going to be very specific about the sort of business you can and can't do. And the response is just that banks will say, okay, we have these algorithms, we have these spreadsheets that tell us, you know, who or what is on a sanctioned list. If it has anything to do with Syria, we're not going to have anything to do with you. I mean, I spoke to an international aid group at one point that was doing work in Syria. They had to change who they did all of their banking with everywhere in the world, uh, payroll, whatever it was, because the previous bank they were working with said, you have ties to Syria. We don't want to touch you at all. It's not only that banks don't want to have anything to do with Syria. I mean, they haven't had a relationship with Syria for, for many, many years, but they don't even want to have a relationship with a customer that might have some link to Syria. So the result is that it just makes a, a country like Syria, even someone who is a citizen of Syria or people who have relatives in Syria who live in the United States, it makes those people radioactive as well. And, and we've seen this a lot, whether it's Iran, Syria, other sanctioned countries, Venezuela, where people who have relatives or connections or do business in some way in those countries, they themselves can't even get banking services. Sylvia, what does that mean on the ground in Syria when we're talking about actual aid groups that normally rush into a disaster scene like this? What are they finding when it comes to being able to deliver help in this sanctioned nation? Well, I think there's sort of two other things to think about with this. So it's true that, you know, if a country is under sanctions, it complicates any kind of transactions, whether it's, you know, trade, financial, anything like this. That's just a, a fact that it kind of holds people off doing it because they see, like Nick was saying, they see the word Syria and they think, oh, I don't want to go there. However, I think there's, you know, on aid, there's two different things. There's sort of aid channeled through the UN and the EU. Um, who have a system in place to do that via Damascus. So you have these sort of international groupings of aid, and then you have bilateral aid. So I think, you know, countries like the US, Germany, France, they won't do bilateral direct Syria to Germany, US to Syria aid, because it's just too toxic. But they can contribute to an aid fund or aid via a UN agency or the EU. We should avoid sort of the idea that sanctions necessarily means a stoppage. For example, sanctions haven't stopped the UAE delivering aid to Syria. I mean, and the UAE has has, um, has airlifted tons of aid to both Syria and Turkey. So that's a bilateral uh, aid transfer for a country that has a different point of view about the sanctions there. So you have that. So the aid is kind of 
trickling through on a bilateral basis. Then you've also got this international aid that can be channeled through the UN and the EU. The problem really lies is that, you know, the UN and the EU will deal with Damascus and then they need to negotiate in order to deliver the aid to the places that they think it's needed. And it's always this very delicate game. You know, the government wants the aid, all aid to go to government held areas that it controls. But, you know, some of these areas that are really hit are not government held areas. So how do you cross those lines? How do you cross those battle lines? How do you cross into areas which, you know, you need to get government access? You need to be able to have the ability to cross over. And also, you know, I think, you know, we've also thought, you know, you need to be able to feel that it's safe and secure to cross these lines to deliver aid in the first place. And then how does the aid get transferred within the country itself? If you're dealing with Damascus, is Damascus going to allow aid flows to happen to all parts of the country? And we've seen throughout the Syrian conflict that that's just not happened. And if you're an aid group and the Assad government is saying you must deliver it to us and then we'll make sure it gets there, there isn't a whole lot of faith, I imagine, that Assad is actually going to deliver that aid to areas not controlled by his government that he's trying to destroy. It's the constant dilemma of aid workers in Syria. What do they do? Do they deliver nothing? Do they deliver something and hope that it will get through? And how can they guarantee that it will get through? There's been Turkish attempts to get cross-border aid in um, and through those checkpoints, which requires Russian okay, uh, again, because the airspace and the fact that Russia is very present in that area. So I think, you know, maybe in one way it would be easier for, I know the US has done it, supporting Turkish aid partners, right, through those cross-border transfers. That kind of makes more sense than going through Damascus and hoping it will get there. At least if you're going to Turkey, uh, then things will get through that border. Uh, I guess the issue is that, um, you know, there's questions perhaps from the US or from other sides about which groups Turkey is delivering aid to and whether that can be tracked and who they are and are those people that they don't like. So I think, you know, we'll probably see um, the US Western powers opting to go through the UN, the EU, through Turkey and through other partners that can do that. Nick, in the aftermath of the earthquake, the US decided to suspend some of the sanctions against Syria for humanitarian aid and earthquake relief. How does that work? The Treasury Department issues what's called a general license and that theoretically would allow banks to facilitate transactions so that you could get money to the people who need it most. And and what's actually happened in the Syria case, which is pretty extraordinary, is the general license is even more broad than it has been in the past. So what the U.S. government has said is basically, if you're facilitating a transaction into Syria and you are told that that money is going to be used for for humanitarian aid, you are basically absolved of all responsibility for what actually ends up happening to that money. And this has been the problem in the past because a bank or a a payment processor will facilitate a transaction and if the person that uses that money then takes it and spends it on something that it wasn't intended for, the bank can be punished. So what the government has said now is basically that is no longer the case. If if you are told this money is going to be used for humanitarian relief, you have no responsibility in terms of what actually ends up happening to the money. And that's a big change. And so do you think that's going to open up the gates to more money going to Syria? Or are institutions still going to be like, yeah, you say that, but we're not going to risk everything on, you know, hoping that that's the case? I would not expect banks to get rid of their extremely cautious approach 
to Syria. Uh, this has been a perennial problem. The U.S. government is constantly doing this, whether it's Iran, Myanmar, North Korea. They say, okay, we provide exemptions for humanitarian aid. So the jury is very much out whether this much more sweeping license will help. But, uh, you know, Sylvia, as, as you're saying, um, it's so much bigger because who are you going to give that money to is that infrastructure there Do, will the partners be able to get the get the aid to where it needs to go and in a lot of ways those pathways are not really there that that infrastructure was all taken away and uh to just expect that this is just going to suddenly kick back into high gear because the u.s government issued a license to allow the sort of transactions that it has spent 12 years trying to dismantle that's going to be a heavy lift Sylvia, when you look ahead, what is the fate of all of these people already living in terrible conditions whose lives have now been utterly devastated? This conflict in Syria has been going on for more than a decade. Um, this has reached areas that have been devastated. You know, basic infrastructure has crumbled. In many ways, people have found a way to get along. And, and you know, now they've got this new enormous challenge to face. It's, you know, a real humanitarian crisis that's only got worse by what's happened. Um, and I think, you know, what in terms of aid and what will happen, a lot depends on uh, Turkey and how Turkey is able to see if it can somehow aid can be delivered through more checkpoints uh, with Syria on the question of sanctions. So the Syrian government has argued that all they need now is the lifting of European and US sanctions. And um, they've said that it's the sanctions that have made life impossible in Syria and that has actually caused the death of people under the rubble. So that's sort of the Syrian government line. And you know, aid workers and diplomats involved are really rejecting this idea. They say that the government in Damascus is exploiting the situation for its own gain. Um, and they're saying that most Syrian aid funded by Europe and the US goes through UN agencies and their local partners in the capital. So it goes to Damascus. And that Syria has routinely blocked international aid to rebel-held areas of the country. So it's and, and siphoned off supplies to government-held areas. So it's more about the internal movement of aid that's the problem, and that Damascus does get aid. It's not sanctions that are to blame for this. It's the internal movement of aid within the country that's the problem. And it's really interesting that you say that, Sylvia, because also historically, when you you look back at situations where countries have been under heavy sanction. Uh, that's an argument that's been made before where a leader will find it politically expedient to blame sanctions on uh, the countries that are applying them because it gives them, you know, an outsider to blame for uh, policies that they themselves created. At the same time, I think what's so tragic about the Syria situation is that the U.S., by imposing all these sanctions and essentially severing Syria from the global financial community, Washington has boxed itself out and lost whatever leverage, financial leverage, it had over Syria to affect any change. Nick Wadhams, Sylvia Westall, thanks for talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you. When we come back, how one aid group is managing to get help to earthquake victims in Syria. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more 
at cartereconomicforum.com. We heard Sylvia say that entering Syria through Turkey is one way aid groups can get help to the people there without having to go through the Syrian government or risk violating U.S. and European sanctions. And that's what the International Rescue Committee is doing. It's a non-governmental organization, or NGO, and they're on the ground in Syria now. Jennifer Higgins, who you heard briefly at the top of the show, coordinates the group's efforts in Syria. And she joins me now from Amman, Jordan. Jennifer, can you describe what you're seeing on the ground right now in Syria? Yeah, of course. I mean, every day we're really uh, still coming to grasp the effects of this devastating earthquake. You know, more than 26 million people have been affected. And this includes 13 million Syrians who were already in crisis inside Syria and 2 million Syrian refugees uh, who were living in the affected areas in Turkey. You know, the impacts of this earthquake will really only exacerbate um, the needs of these people at a time whenever we've seen temperatures plummeting and a winter storm coming into the area. And, you know, we at the IRC had been warning for a long time about the devastating impacts winter would have uh, on this uh, highly vulnerable population. And, you know, it's, it's still very hard to tell how many people will be really left homeless from this crisis. Um, And the huge numbers of casualties especially is overwhelming an already critically fragile healthcare system in northwest Syria. And, you know, following not only COVID-19, the conflict, but also a very recent cholera outbreak. You know, we had 30,000 cases of cholera just in December and we were responding to that already as an emergency. There's really urgent medical needs in the hospitals, not only medicines, but bandages, painkillers, really all sorts of services. And around 57 hospitals were damaged uh, due to the earthquake. We've been talking today about how sanctions against Syria make it very difficult to work inside the country and deliver aid to parts of the country that are controlled by the government. Your group, the IRC, operates in a part of the country that is not controlled by the Assad government and therefore is outside the scope of sanctions for humanitarian purposes. Can you describe how you operate in this part of the country? I mean, this division of Syria in itself provides a huge challenge in terms of providing an, uh, you know, a good response to vulnerable communities. But the real challenge is that Every year, we're really seeing the humanitarian needs increasing, but yet the global focus on Syria and the finances being made available are really decreasing. You know, and what's challenging specifically about this area of the northwest of the country is that most of our staff uh, from outside of the northwest can't enter. And this is why we really rely on our excellent team on the ground, as well as our partner organizations uh, for providing our response. You know, and this is also further compounded by the fact that there's very limited crossings into the area. And the last few years, we've been only operating or the UN has only been operating through one crossing point called Bab al-Hawa. As NGOs, we use commercial routes uh, across a number of border crossing points to deliver assistance. But the scale of what us and local uh, organizations can do is nothing really to match what the UN can do. You know, this disaster clearly demonstrates the vital need to keep, you know, life-saving cross-border assistance from Turkey into northwest Syria. Um, And, you know, what we hope to see is that uh, all viable routes into northwest Syria are opened to ensure that aid agencies can really get into the country at scale and speed necessary to deal with this really devastating crisis. The government has 
tried to make it so that all aid has to go through Damascus and then the government will distribute it. Has that hampered you at all? It hasn't affected us because we are still able to use the border crossing points from Turkey into northwest Syria. And this has really always been our priority. You know, um, Bab al-Hawa is specifically for the UN mandated aid, but there is also a commercial channel there, which is the one that NGOs use. And there's also some other gates like Baba Salam, where we can also use uh, the commercial channels to get necessary aid into the area. We've seen some delays over the last weeks of the transport of commercial goods but you know only time will tell if this is just a backlog due to needs but also we have to recognize that the area of Turkey that's been worst hit by the earthquake you know is really where all of these crossing points are so you know there's also just a lack of resources for manning these border crossing points at the moment but we're really watching closely to make sure that we can continue to escalate and get the goods that we need into into northwest Syria you know through these crossing points. Because it's so difficult to deliver aid over these limited passages and routes into the country, how long do you think it will take before the necessary help can be delivered to all of these people who are already suffering? Yeah, I think, you know, we're really trying to to keep our finger on the pulse in terms of this. It's been really hard over the last week, you know, amidst all of, as you can imagine, uh, everyone mobilizing so quickly to start to respond on the ground, to understand the mechanisms by which we're going to be able to provide uh, aid. You know, luckily for ourselves in the IRC, we have stocks on the ground, we have staff in place on the ground, and we have a delivery of pharmaceuticals due to come in the next weeks. So we just have to wait to see if it's able to really scale up quickly to meet the needs because the pace at which we're seeing now is just is just not enough and if we don't really urgently try and open up those routes and get more goods across we'll just see more lives really needlessly being lost jennifer higgins thanks for speaking with me thank you very much thanks for listening to us here at the big take it's a daily podcast from bloomberg and iHeartRadio. for more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Virgolina. Our senior producer and the producer of this episode is Catherine Fink, with additional production support from Federica Romagnello. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.